Turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter number 1. What a blessing to have our visitors here with us today. And happy Father's Day to all of you. And uh, what a blessing to be a father. And uh, some days it's better than other days, but I guess every day it's all right. Amen. And uh, I appreciate my earthly father, the blessing he has been in my life. And uh, appreciate, I, I will say this, he's a lot better grandfather than he was a father, though. If I'm being, if I'm being honest with you. I mean, my kids, he lets my kids do anything, you know. And uh, sometimes I'll look at my parents, you know, we'll, we'll be over at the house and the kids, I don't know, they'll break something, go wild. I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear you out. They'll say, oh, don't hurt him. Don't leave him. I thought, who are you people? Have aliens come down and snatched you up and replaced you? You weren't like this when I was being raised, amen? And uh, but praise the Lord anyway. Hebrews chapter number 1. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. This is the message God laid on my heart. It's not a Father's Day message, I don't suppose, but I called your daddy and, and asked uh, him what he wanted for Father's Day. He said he wanted you to go to church, amen? And he wanted you to worship. And he wanted you to hear preaching. And so we're going to try to do our best to please the Lord this morning. Hebrews chapter number 1. Verse number one, the Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand, of the majesty on high. We'll stop reading there. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Lord, I thank you for this group of people that are here this morning. Lord, they're here because they love you. They're here because they want to hear from you. And they're here because they're serious about their Christian walk. And Lord, there could be some that are here because they've got a daddy that loves them and and wanted them, asked them to be here today. And Lord, I'm thankful to report to them and to praise you for the fact that not only do they have an earthly father that loves them, but they can have a relationship with a heavenly father that loves them even more than that earthly father does. I pray, Lord, if there's any that are lost and undone, that they not leave this place before they believed on Christ, been born again into the family of God. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for what you will do, and we praise you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice what the Hebrews writer said, and I believe the Hebrews writer was Paul. And a lot of people don't believe that, and a lot of people are wrong. And one day they'll get to heaven... (laughs) And they're going to find out I'm right. And if you're one of those people, I'm not mad at you for being wrong. But I believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So I might say the Hebrews writer. I might say the Apostle Paul. And you're just going to give me grace, I hope, either way this morning. Uh, The Hebrews writer makes this statement in verse number 1 and 2. I want you to notice it carefully. God, who at sundry times... Now, that means different times. Old timey, they used to have what they'd call sundry stores. They'd have a section to be sundries. And what that means is is miscellaneous, different. He uses the term divers in the next phrase. And that word divers does not mean like a scuba diver, but it means diverse, different. So at different times, different places, different seasons, uh, in different manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, you'll notice the book of Hebrews is called the book of Hebrews. It isn't called the book of Italians or the book of Irish. It's called the book of Hebrews because he's writing to Jewish individuals. So when he talks about the fathers, he's talking about the fathers of the Jewish faith. He's talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and Jacob's sons. And he says he spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. That was the way that God spoke to humanity was he would pick a man and select, anoint, call that man to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. And that man would be the voice of God to that nation. 
But the Bible says this in verse 2. He hath in these last days. Now, uh, people say, preacher, don't you think we're in the last days? Sure I do. I hate Paul was in the last days. We're definitely in the last days. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last days. Amen. Uh, but we are certainly in the last days. He hath in these last days spoken unto us. Now, how's he done this? How's God spoken to humanity? He hath spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Now, I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. When I look at this passage, I'm struck by the fact, you know, God's still speaking to people's hearts today. In fact, you're here today, and I hope you came with the anticipation that God was going to speak to your heart. As we preach the Word of God, our desire, my desire, I was praying before the service even started while the choir was up there doing such a wonderful job singing. I was praying and saying, now, God, speak to hearts this morning. God is still speaking to hearts. And yet, in Hebrews chapter number 1, we're told that He hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. That would seem to imply that God has spoken and He's done speaking. How do we reconcile these two realities? How do we reconcile these two concepts? Well, here's what the Hebrews writer is saying. Throughout human history, God has chosen a bunch of different ways to speak to humanity. It's fascinating when you think about all the ways that God has spoken to man. Uh, When you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find that God walked with uh, man in the cool of the day. You can find times that He spoke to people in dreams, spoke to people in visions. Uh, You'll find times that He spoke to people directly. There's plenty of times the Bible says the Word of the Lord said unto somebody, You don't have to believe what I'm about to say, but I know who the Word of the Lord is. Amen. Uh, We're told in John chapter number 1 that He was made flesh and and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think there were times that what theologians would call a theophany or a Christophany, when before Bethlehem, God appeared to mankind and spoke to Him in that way. There were times, hey, God even used donkeys. Hey, don't lose hope, some of y'all this morning. God even used donkeys. To speak to people. God has used a myriad of different ways. But here's how God has given His final message to humanity regarding the plan of redemption, regarding His plan for the ages, regarding where God stands in His interactions with mankind. He spoke unto us through Jesus Christ. I want to preach to you on this thought. The end of the line. Here's what the Hebrews writer is saying in regards to God's revelation of His person and of His personality and of His plans to humanity. Jesus Christ is the end of the line. If you will not reckon with Jesus Christ, then you won't reckon with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. He is the door to the sheepfold. Hey, anybody that tries to get in any other way is a thief. He is the door. The only legitimate way to come to God is through Jesus Christ. And if you're waiting for something new, I'm sorry to tell you, you're just going to have to keep waiting. He is the end of the line. When we read through the book of Hebrews, this, of course, is harmonious with the book of Hebrews and its theme. Because the book of Hebrews, if we if we named its theme, if we titled it anything, it would be Christ is better than. And all through the book of Hebrews, that's what Paul is dealing with. He's talking about how Christ is better than. He's better than the old sacrifices. He's better than the old priesthood. He's better than the old prophets. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than everything else. He's the best this morning. And so he's pointing to the fact that there's nothing better coming. There's nothing more we're waiting on. 
But in fact, he is the end of the line. And if a man is going to have a relationship with a God, if a man, woman, or child is going to have a relationship with God, they're going to have to do so through Jesus Christ. There is no detour around him. There is no exception to this. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have a personal relationship with God. Because Christ is the only way to get to God. And so when we read through the book of Hebrews, and it'd scare you if I told you all the portions we're going to read this morning. You'd get up and walk out and disappoint your daddy in doing it if you did. Amen. But, 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 but I, I just want us to look at a few passages in the book of Hebrews, and I want us to think about Christ being the end of the line in regards to man's search for God. Hey, I'm glad He's the end of righteousness to everyone that believes. He's the end of the law under righteousness to everyone that believes. I'm not trying to keep my salvation through good works. I'm not trying to earn my salvation through good works. He is the end of the law for righteousness. Not for recklessness, not for lawlessness, but for righteousness. He gives a man his righteousness and he has done what the law never could do in that it was weak through the flesh. Hey, what what the law, I might just preach a little while, what the law could not do. Now, some of y'all, probably just about all of us is Gentiles sitting in here this morning. I don't see no funny little hats out there. We're probably all Gentiles this morning. And you're sitting there thinking, now law, I ain't got nothing to do with the Jewish law. No, but you have a law for yourself, and it's called the law of consciousness. Conscience. That's what uh, Paul called it in the book of Romans. says that the uh, Gentiles, when they uh, do by law uh, those things which are contained in the law, they have a law unto themselves. That's the law of conscience. There's a lot of people think they're going to get to heaven because they're doing right according to their conscience. Uh, we use ter- this terminology down here in East Tennessee, well, they're good people. They're good folks, right? I don't even know what that means. There's none good. No, not one. Hey, listen, there's none good but God. He's the only one. There, there's none that is righteous. We're all together unrighteous. People say, well, I'm, they're good people. They're good folks. Good old boy. I mean, they're good, 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 good. Isn't it funny how mankind has co-opted that word good? Like man knows what good is. Only God knows what good is. And uh, people say, well, you know, they're, they're a good person. Well, only God gets to decide that. But here's what people are saying. They're saying, according to my conscience... I believe I am a good person. But hey, listen, you know what your conscience cannot do? It cannot make you righteous in the eyes of God. Just like the law of commandment couldn't do it for the Jew, the law of conscience can't do it for the Gentile. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Whose flesh? Your flesh and my flesh. You know the conscience can be corrupted. Hey, listen, you, you don't turn on the news. Tell me you don't think. Hey, listen, go, go, uh, go talk to a politician. You think it can't be, uh, corrupted and seared and stomped and pulverized and turned to powder? Uh, the conscience doesn't have the mastery over mankind. But listen, the Spirit of God, He doesn't bend or bow to any man. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The law can't save you. Your good works can't save you. Your baptism can't save you. Uh, None of that can save you, but He can save you this morning. Amen? All right. I I want us to notice this morning, Acts chapter number 4, and I think this embodies, some of y'all said, uh, Acts, I thought we was in Hebrews. Well, we are. Don't get excited. We'll get back there. Listen to what Peter says. I I think this puts it in no uncertain terms. In Acts chapter number 4, they asked him uh, about this miracle that God had performed. And then verse number 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole. Listen to what Peter says, Be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone, talking about Jesus. This 
This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, talking about the rulers of Israel, which has become the head of the corner. He's the master, amen, he's the head. Neither, he says in verse 12, is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the end of the line. Notice four thoughts with me from the book of Hebrews and we'll be done this morning. Let me say number one this morning, he's the end of the line for revelation. Now, when I mean revelation, I don't simply mean the final book in the Word of God, but I mean God revealing Himself to humanity. When He revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, He revealed Himself completely, fully, and adequately. Can I tell you, listen, the next self-help guru that comes down trying to peddle and grift you some book, they're not going to tell you anything about God that you won't find in this King James Bible. God has spoken. And he's given us a revelation of himself. Notice what the Hebrews writer says. Number one, he's the final revelation of God. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, by whom he hath appointed, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. God's not sending out any more prophets. I understand there's two prophets in the book of Revelation. They're not here to disclose new truth. They're here to bear witness to existing truth. Uh, there's, listen, if some TV preacher calls himself a prophet, you just go ahead and change the channel. He ain't a prophet. Uh, if some TV preacher calls himself an apostle, you go ahead and change the channel. He ain't an apostle. He hasn't seen the risen living Lord in the flesh. Uh, that was one of the prerequisites to being an apostle. Hey, we okay this morning? I didn't, I didn't hit on something, did I? We okay this morning. You're not scared of a little Bible, are you? Uh, if somebody calls themselves an apostle, they're trying to sell you something. And it ain't biblical truth. They're not trying to help you. They're not trying to encourage you. No. Here's the reality of the matter. God has already spoken. And He's spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no, every few years they'll come out, they'll dig out some book and say that it was supposed to have been in the Bible. Funny, somebody should let God know about that. He would have put it in the Bible a long time ago, wouldn't He? And they'll say, oh, this is giving us some glorious, grand new revelation. It always, by the way, seems in line with Hollywood's agenda. It always would make, it, 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 it always would make terrible Bible, but a great script. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that amazing? And they'll come along and they'll say, well, we found this new Bible. No, listen, God has put his sealed stamp of approval on this Bible. He has closed the pages and he has put a curse on anyone that tries to add to or take away. He has spoke. He is done speaking. He still speaks to the hard individual, but guess how he does that? He does that through the Word of God. He's going to point you back. I hate calling automated lines. Don't you hate that? I mean, you would think I'd be valuable enough as a customer to at least pay somebody in India to misunderstand what I'm saying. But you'll call and, and, and it'll be this automated. And I hate dealing with it because it'll say, if you push option number four, if you need this. And I'll say, well, I need this and I'll push option number four. And it'll say, push option number six, if you need this. And I'll push option number six. And then it'll say, if you'd like to speak with an operator, push zero. I'll tell you something. Usually I push zero first thing. It don't always work, but sometimes it does. And then, and then it'll ring and then it'll say, welcome to such and such. And they just circled me right back on them. That's all they've done. It don't waste their time. It's a computer, but it sure wastes my time. And it's maddening. But can I tell you something? Hey, listen, there's a lot of people looking for new options when it comes to spirituality, religion, and God and things this matter. Can I tell you, God's going to send you right back to option number one. He's going to point you right back to the Word of God. He is the final revelation of God. Let me say number two, He is the full revelation of God. Look what it says at the end of verse number three. Who being, I like this, man, who being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. In other words, what do we have here? Well, we have we have that he is the full, accurate, descript, clear, distinct picture of who God is. 
He's a picture of His majesty. It says, who being the brightness of His glory. Uh, when men saw Him walk robed in flesh, they did not see Him the way that heaven sees Him. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, for just a few moments, the divinity of Christ burst uh, over the humanity of Christ. And for just a few moments, they saw Him like heaven sees Him. And the, the records, they, they all agree, but they're all distinct in their own way. One record says that He was white like fuller's soap. One record says uh, that He was glistering. One record says He was above the brightness of the sun. What was they seeing? They were seeing the brightness of His glory. They were seeing that He is just as much God as God the Father is. Somehow we've got this misnomer in our head that there's this pecking order in the in the Trinity, and that's not the case. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is as much God as God the Father is. He's the brightness of His glory. Not only that, He's the express image of His person. Hey, uh, it, it, to look at Jesus, and this is what Jesus said to Philip in John chapter 14. Uh, Philip started complaining and saying, uh, you know, uh, why don't you show us the Father? And it suffices us. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. Show us God. We want to see God. And Jesus looked at him and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you? And yet thou hast not known me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hey, listen, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten uh, that is in his bosom hath declared him unto us. That's what the book of John says. Uh, To look at Jesus is to look at God. You want to know what God thinks about matters? Ask yourself what the Word of God says about matters. Look to the written Word as Jesus is the living Word. And what you'll find is the thought, perspective, and opinion of God. You know, John chapter number 1, we already quoted it this morning, but I'm going to read it to you again. says this, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, Not just the Word was sort of from God. Not just the Word was approximately in the arena of being like something God would say. But the Word was God. A lot of times people say, well, preacher, why does it really matter what we believe about the Bible? Why do you make such a big deal? Because the Word was God, and the Word is God. That's why it matters. Hey, uh, God thinks it matters. He says the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, that may be a little abstract to you, but let's just put it in language we can understand. Verse 14 says this, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Now, you may say, well, preacher, who is that Word? Who is this person? It says, And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, in nature, in spirit, in message, and in purpose, uh, the written Word and the living Word are completely indistinguishable distinguishably harmonious. You won't find anything in the words and letters and statements of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that are written that He said and that He did, that is uh, incongruous with the rest of this Bible, that doesn't agree with the rest of this Bible. By the same token, people say, well, preacher, if He was walking amongst us, well, He's laying right there in your lap. He's sitting on this pulpit. We have His Word before us. We have the full revelation of God. There's no new great visions and trances and things coming along the line. No, there's nothing you need to learn about God in a dream that you ain't going to learn about Him in this book. It is the full revelation of God. But then I would say this, it's the finished revelation of God. Verse number 3 says, When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now what's the Hebrews writer saying? He's saying He ain't here, He's there. He's done living the Word in front of us because He has given us a written record of it. And that work has now been accomplished. And now He is about His present work of interceding as high priest for the people that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the throne on high. Let me tell you, when He comes back, He's not coming back to write a book. He's coming back to rule a world. Uh, you have everything that you possibly need to know. If you're waiting for some great vision or revelation, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not going to get it. If you get it, it probably ain't going to be from Him uh, because He has already spoken in His Word. He is the 
end of the line in the matter of Revelation. But then look what it says, verse number 8. I like this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Let me say he's the end of the line for revelation, but number two, he's the end of the line for administration. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean he's the king and there's no appeals court to get around him. We gripe all the time about how old our politicians are. Um, I do anyways. I don't know if you do. One good thing about them being so old is we're apt to outlive most of them. I felt you get offended when I said that. It's all right. Uh, can I tell you this this morning? There ain't no outliving him. You're going to have to deal with him. One way or another, you're either going to receive him or you're going to reject him. But one way or another, you're going to bow before him because his throne is forever and ever. Notice, number one, this morning, the legitimacy of his administration. Unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God. So who's this speaking? Unto the Son. It's the Father speaking. You remember there at the River Jordan when he was baptized, the voice uh, spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A little later, that voice spoke again and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, lest we wondered, it said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then it said, Hear Him. Listen to Him. In other words, we're not dealing with some rogue evangelist. We're not dealing with some up-jump and upstart guru. We're dealing with the God-sanctioned King of glory. He is, the Bible says, the King of kings. And you know what that means? There ain't no king that can claim supremacy over Him. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His throne is forever and ever. It is a scepter of righteousness, the scepter of His kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, it says, and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. I'll tell you why you're going to have to deal with Jesus, because God has chosen and crowned Him King, and there's none coming after Him. I see the legitimacy of His administration. Number two, I see the length of it. Verse number 10, Thou, Lord... In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Now, that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, of course, is in perfect keeping with what the Bible says, both in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. It says, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. But also Colossians, chapter number 1, says that through Jesus Christ, that he created all things, that the worlds were created. And so it's talking about Jesus. It's saying, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Then it says this, They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture, man, I like this, as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. One of these days, God's going to take this world, and he's going to fold it up like a towel, like an old shirt out of the laundry. When he's ready in his time and by his prerogative, he's going to say, all right, the administrations, the governance of this world, their autonomy, their sovereignty is over. I will fold them up. I will sit on my throne. I will take authority over all of them. In other words, he's going to outlive all of the earthly thrones. 
By the way, that's true of your autonomy as well. There's going to come a day when you can't make a choice, when you can't make a decision. That's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, hey, uh, today if you will hear, harden not your hearts. Today's the day of salvation. You've got a choice today, but one of these days, like it or not, you're going to bow the knee. I'd rather bow it of my own free heart's choice. I see the length of his administration. Then notice the limitlessness of it. Verse number, I don't like that word limitlessness. It's hard to say and it costs too much money, but I used it. Verse number 13 says this, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, why does Paul say this? Uh, Because at this time and even today in human history, there's great infatuation with angels. And he's saying, hey, God didn't look at the angels and say, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. But he sure enough spoke to his son and said, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. In other words, even the angels in heaven bow before him. Uh, the Bible describes creatures that fly around the throne of God and they have one singular sole purpose through eternity past to eternity future and that's just cry out day by day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the reason they exist. There's not a person in this world who is not under the jurisdiction of His authority. Every single one of us. That's why Philippians chapter 2 says this, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now, if you can find something that ain't in heaven, in earth, or under the earth, I'll give you a dollar. I'll buy you a frosty, all right? Uh, No, that's everything, in other words, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying one of these days you're going to have to deal with Him. You're going to bow the knee before Him. When I was a 10-year-old boy, I bowed my knee before him, and I received Christ as my Savior. And I'll tell you this, I've never regretted a day of it. I'm glad I bowed the knee before him. Sooner or later, you're going to have to. Hey, listen, the most uh, foaming at the mouth, angry, rage-filled, God-hating atheists walking the earth. Isn't it amazing they can hate something they don't believe in so much? That's amazing, isn't it? I have never once started a blog to disprove the theory of the Easter Bunny. Never once in my life. You know why? Because he's fake. Some of y'all, I saw the crestfallen look on your faces when I said that. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you. And uh, we need to talk about the tooth fairy later too, all right? You know why I ain't never done that? Because they're not real. Isn't it amazing how the the rage-filled, angry, but enlightened atheist spend all their time talking about how God is not... All the problems in the world caused by God that ain't even real. Isn't that amazing? Even they will one day bow the knee. Every politician will bow the knee. Every king, every emperor will bow the knee. A lot of them have already bowed the knee. A lot of the greatest men in history have already come face to face with the king of glory and bowed their knee before him, whether they wanted to or not. You're going to bow the knee. One of these days, I'm, I, listen, we all are going to bow the knee. I'm just begging you to bow it now and receive him as Savior. I see that he is the end of the line for administration. There's no appeals court after him. But then turn over to chapter 2 and notice what it says. Chapter number 2, verse number 1 says this, Therefore, therefore, and I like that word therefore, it tells me what I ought to be paying attention to, right? Because of all the things that were said in chapter 1, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward. How shall we escape? This is here. God asks the question. He don't even have an answer to. How shall we escape 
if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. In other words, here's what the Hebrews writer says. God has spoken unto us by his Son. He has given us a means and way of salvation. How are we going to escape if we turn away that salvation that he has offered? And let me say it this way. He's the end of the line for salvation this morning. There's no one and nowhere else to go to if you want to get saved. You know why? There is no other salvation. He offers the only salvation that there is to have. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that after in uh, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, you know what that means? That means philosophy, intellect. It means trying to discern and understand who God is through human intuition and through human intellect. Man failed at that. Man failed at that. Man failed at that. Right. I I mean, uh, man just makes bad decisions and and they made a bad decision. God revealed himself. Man said, I don't want that. Here's what God did. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. That doesn't mean that preaching is foolhardy. It doesn't mean that it's folly. But what it means is in human intellect, relatively speaking, it's foolishness Uh, that listen, you don't have to be dumb to be saved. Uh, You don't have to be smart to be lost. I'm glad God saves intellectual people just like he saves ignorant people like me. Uh, But I'm telling you this, that in regards to the world's wisdom, Preaching does not make sense. The world does not understand what we're doing here today. It's always amusing to me to see some Hollywood interpretation of what goes on in church because it becomes so painfully apparent they ain't never been to church. It's amazing. I mean, what they think, what they think goes on in this building is shocking. But you know why? They don't understand what we're doing here this morning. They don't understand why you come to this place. Uh, and listen, even if you're, you're here lost and undone and God's stirring your heart and God's doing something in your life and He's calling you to salvation, they don't understand that impulse. They don't understand that compulsion. And they can't identify with it. It doesn't make sense to them. Uh, it's foolishness to them, but God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. It messes up their religion. Unto the Greeks' foolishness, it messes up their rationale. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, God ain't switching lanes. He's not changing tactics. He's chosen the gospel of Jesus Christ to save them that would believe. If you reject the gospel, you reject the only hope that you have. He is the end of the line for salvation. There's no other salvation. Then look what it says, verse number 5. For unto the angels uh, hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Now let me frame this a little bit. The Hebrews writer is talking about mankind and God's desire for man. What does God desire for mankind? God's elevated man even above the angels. One in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now that may have felt a little Dr. Seussish, but let me see if I can unravel that uh, thread for you just a little bit. God has set a, a design of what he wants man to be. God crowned man in creation, made him the master over creation, put all things in subjection under him. And God's desire was that man be a certain way. But you know man failed that that vision for what God wanted them to be. Man 
man's sin. We don't see man in that condition. But now we look at the Lord Jesus and we see that He is all that man could not be. Uh, He is all that man should have been. He is all that man could ever hope to be. So here we have mankind fallen, broken, hopeless, helpless, not living up to what God has desired. Here we see Jesus and He is all that God could desire. He is impeccably righteous and perfectly sinless and wholly glorious and exactly what God would have man to be. He's not just God in the flesh. He is the perfect example of what man should have been. But what do we see? That's not what we see. We don't see man up here. Instead, what do we see here? Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In other words, here's what happened. Here's what God desires man to be and man is not. Here's what God looks for in Jesus and Jesus is everything. So here's what happened. Uh, Jesus took the place of man that man might take the place of Jesus. Uh, Here's how the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians. says, God hath made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took our place on Calvary. And that leads me to this. Hey, listen, not only is there no other salvation, but there is no other sacrifice than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other substitute. There's no one coming along going to pull you out of your sins. If you won't come to Jesus, you just won't get help because He is the only sacrifice that God has accepted. The Bible goes on in great detail about this in the book of Hebrews. It says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should wash away sins. If it were, hey, listen, they would have ceased to have been offered. Uh, but they're not ceased to be offered. The Bible says that every year they were offered, and in those is a remembrance of sin every single year. Hey, but what was not possible with the blood of bulls and of goats, here's what God did. God sent His own Son. God shed His own blood on the cross of Calvary. God offered Himself once for sins because that's all that it took. He is the sacrifice. He is the substitute. And here's what happens if we reject Him. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says this, If we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, and that doesn't mean people that's born again and mess up and sin. The reason we know that is because of what it says afterwards. It says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. It's talking about mankind. If we know the truth, But we say, I don't want that truth. I'm going to persist in my sin and my iniquity. I'm going to keep living in my unrighteousness. I know what's right. I know what's true. But I don't want to do that. I'm unwilling to do that. I'm going to put it off. I'm going to put it to another day. I'm going to decide some other time. If we do that, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. What does he mean when he says that? Well, he's he notice the language very descriptive that the Holy Ghost uses. No more sacrifice. Hey, I'm glad there's been many a person that's rejected Christ and come back to him and got born again. But there's no more sacrifice. He ain't going to die on the cross again. There's no more. There's no other sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice for... If you won't come to Him, you won't get forgiveness. Because there is no other sacrifice. What is there? Verse 27, A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. In other words, you're either on the right side of Calvary or on the wrong side of Calvary. If you won't come to Jesus Christ, you're going to be on that side with the adversaries. And if you do, there's no one coming to rescue you. There's no one coming to bail you out. There's no one coming to to get you out of that mess because He is the only sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice. You know what that brings us to? Verse 10 says this, For it became Him. And that word became it means it was appropriate. It was befitting. It became Him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. So, in other words, it was appropriate because everything's about Him. 
in bringing many sons unto glory. That's people getting born again. That's what that is. That's why the Bible says that uh, to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even them which believe on his name, bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that word perfect, it has two connotations in the Bible. Uh, the word perfect can mean like like without any flaw. Any Look up here, this right here, perfect. Perfect. I'll unbutton my coat. Perfect. Perfect. But <laughs> I'll hush back there. These young people don't know that yet. Y'all hush back there. But also the word perfect can mean complete, consummated, full, finished. In other words, aptly fit for a task. When the Bible says to make him perfect through sufferings, it's not saying he was sinful or imperfect. But what it's saying is he is fully and totally and completely equipped to be the captain of our salvation. He didn't learn, the Bible says, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which he suffered. He did not encounter and experience new things through which he suffered. But rather what happened is he credentialed himself to be a fit high priest for you and I. Had he not been through what he had been through, he'd still know everything that he already knew. But we looked at him and said, now you don't know what I'm going through, Lord. The Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He's been through it. He's felt it. He's experienced it. And now he's a perfect captain. You know, the captain doesn't... I'm going to be careful how I say this. The captain doesn't have to be the best fighter on the battlefield. Usually he is. But the captain doesn't have to be the best fighter on the battlefield. But he does have to be someone that the soldiers can have confidence in. Hey, we can have confidence in him. He is... Oh my. He's the best savior there is. I'd say it this way, there's no other uh, salvation, there's no other sacrifice, but there's no other Savior than Him. He is the only Savior. I've said this before, even if there were others, I wouldn't want a different one because He's the best one there could be. Even if there were other gods, I wouldn't want them because He's a precious and a sweet God. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter number 4, verse 10, uh, that He is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Isn't that interesting language? Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Does that mean all men are saved? Well, I'd have to throw out the rest of my Bible to believe that. The Bible's abundantly clear. Not everybody gets born again. Everybody can be born again, but not everybody does. People die in their sins. They reject Christ. But the Bible says He's the Savior of all men. But then it says, specially, specially of them that believe. You know what that means? It means if you're going to get saved, you're going to have to come to Him. Because He is the Savior of all men. There is no man that has a different Savior than Him and gets saved. The Buddhists do not get saved through their Savior. Uh, the Mohammedans don't get saved through their Savior. Hey, the JWs don't get saved through their Savior. The Christian scientists don't get saved through their Savior. Only through Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of all men. Some of you say, Preacher, I want Him to be my Savior. Oh, you mean you specially want Him to be your Savior. Well, He is specially the Savior of those that believe. In other words, if you're going to get saved, you're only going to get saved through Him. But if you'll come to Him, here's what He'll do. He'll save you. Today, right now, June whatever this is, June Father's Day this day, Sunday. Today, this day, He will save you if you'll come to Him. And you better come to Him because He's the end of the line for salvation. You're not going to find a church that's going to give it to you. You ain't going to find a priest that's going to give it to you. You ain't going to find a, a new way of experiencing the world that's going to give Dave Ramsey ain't going to give it to you. I, what a weird world we live in. I find myself preaching about Dave Ramsey. Y'all ought to quit spending money, but I could have told you that for a lot cheaper than he did. I think if he really had your interest at heart, he would not be encouraging you to buy all those expensive books. 
Some of y'all went into debt buying Dave Ramsey books. Riddle me that, all right? I'm joking. I don't care one way or the other. Spend all your money. It don't matter to me. It ain't worth nothing anymore. He's the end of the line for salvation. But then notice what it says, verse 14. Man, I like this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him, and that's like it, it sort of like when it says it became him, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now look at this now, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He's the end of the line this morning for revelation. You ain't going to find no new, great, glorious message. This old, old book has the truth. He's the end of the line for administration. You're going to bow your knee before him one day. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. You're not exempted or accepted from the every tongue shall confess. He's the end of the line for salvation this morning. There is no other gospel uh, that can save you. There's, there's no other salvation, no other sacrifice, no other Savior. You're going to have to come to Jesus. There is no other that can save you. But then I would say this. He's the end of the line for reconciliation this morning. What does reconciliation mean? It means to set two parties that are at odds whole again. You know, that's what happened when you got born again. When you got saved, you were at odds with God. You didn't feel like you were probably. Most lost sinners don't. But you know, we, we have funny perspectives about things. We think of enemies as being denoted by personal malice, anger, rage, spite, or animus. But you know, that's rarely the case through human history. Most of the time, people that were enemies on a battlefield didn't feel any particular rage for the person across the battlefield. They were just on two separate eyes, uh, two separate sides uh, of an irreconcilable difference. Uh, whatever that matter was, they stood on this side and their opponents stood on the other side. And they probably didn't hate one another. But that difference was too big to ignore, so something had to be done about it. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that we were the enemies of God. Before we got born again, we were the enemies of God. You're sitting there and you're thinking, now, preacher, I'm not saved, but I don't hate God. I didn't say you hated God. You say, preacher, does God hate me? No, God loves you. So, preacher, then how could me and God be enemies one of another? Well, very simply, there's an issue that you're both on opposite sides of that can't be overlooked. That issue is your sin debt. You owe a sin debt. You've sinned. You are a sinner. You are unrighteous and God is righteous. And now you need someone to deal with that problem in between the two of you. Can I tell you what Jesus Christ did on the Calvary? He stepped on the battlefield in between you and God and He settled that matter. He took all of God's wrath. The Bible says uh, that he hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can answer that this morning because of me and because of you. He forsook him so he wouldn't have to forsake us. He hung on the cross of Calvary, became our sin, died in our place. And when God reached back his hand and he should have smitten us, he smoked Christ. Now all of a sudden that problem (laughs) has been dealt with. I like that. We about to have church. Amen. Wretch that hand back. Amen. Amen. And smote us. Say, preacher, what you getting at? I'm saying he's reconciled us. It should have been us that suffered. But instead, he died in our place. What does the text say here? He's the end of the line. Well, what, what is he the end of the line about? Verse 14, I'd say this. His incarnation reminds us. 
but he's the end of the line. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, where we couldn't get to God, he came to us. I couldn't get to God in my lost condition, but God came to me. He robed himself in flesh and walked amongst men. I couldn't robe myself in divinity. I couldn't be like God, but God became like man that he might reach us. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, uh, that means don't fuss and fight about it. (laughs) That means fighting about it ain't going to change it. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And what's the first part of it? God was manifest in the flesh. In other words, you know why nobody else can get you to God? Because no one else can bring God to you. He became flesh and walked amongst us. I see His incarnation. Then I see His intervention that through death, through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know the greatest problem of humanity aside from their sin problem, and these two things are connected, is your death problem. You are going to die one day. Let's just start health class 101. You ready? Because we seem to have forgotten it over the past few years. You are going to die one day. Have you seen to that problem yet? When I was a 10-year-old boy, I saw to that problem. And I, I didn't have it within me to do it, but I knew. I remember feeling, seeing distinctly in my soul, Toby, if you died, you'd die and go to hell. I had a death problem. But you know what Jesus Christ did? He came, robed Himself in flesh, and through death destroyed Him that had the power of death and delivered them who through their whole lifetime were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, He intervened in my situation. He stood on the battlefield and took my punishment that I might be reconciled to God. I see His His incarnation and His intervention. But then you know, His reconciliation, it don't stop when you get born again. It continues on for the rest of your life. Verse 16 says this, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them. That means to comfort them. That, that, that means to give them peace. Uh, that, that means to, to, to give them confidence. That means when they're struggling, to give them encouragement, to give them strength, and, and able to secure them in that He Himself has also been tempted. You, you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. He's still reconciling us unto God. Day by day, as my sin breaks my fellowship, it don't break my sonship, praise God, but it sure enough breaks my fellowship with God. There's Jesus Christ seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father, a faithful high priest who can look down with with mercy and, and with faithfulness and intercede for my sin and make me right with God again. Who else going to do that for you? You going to do it for yourself? You can't get to God. How are you going to do that? How are you going to pay for your sins? You can't pay for your sins. When you die and go to hell, you stay there eternally. You're plucked up for one uh, small, teeny, tiny moment to be judged at the great white throne judgment and then cast into the lake of fire. You never pay for your sins. You know why? Because you can't pay for your sin. It's impossible to pay for your sins. How are you going to do that? How are you going to get to God? I'll tell you how you can get to God. You can get to Him through Jesus Christ. Well, preacher, maybe one of these days, if you get that day, Man, let me tell you something. Eternity is an awful big thing to gamble on. We preach to the young people up at camp about playing games at the foot of the cross. Those soldiers have that, that coat, that, that seamless coat that's a picture of the righteousness of Christ, and they're gambling over it. 
hey, that's a big thing to gamble over. Preacher, one of these days, if you get that day, I don't believe I'd gamble my eternity. If you get that day, you may never get another opportunity. Listen, if you leave out here lost today, I hope you do get another opportunity because I'd rather you be saved than me be right. But I'm telling you, you may not get another opportunity. Today's the day of salvation. Preacher, I'll find my way. No, we found your way. And it's my way and it's their way. And not because I'm prideful. It's because it's the way. The only way. The truth and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. So the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? He's the end of the line. You better reckon with Him this morning. Let's bow together. As musician comes to play, the altar is open. It's time to do business with God. This is the moment. This is the time. God has dealt with your heart. Slip out of your seat. Come down. And bow your head and your heart before the Lord. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you this morning. I thank you for the good church we've had, the worship, liberty we felt. Lord, I pray that you'd please speak to hearts this morning. I pray that you'd do what I'm unable to do. Lord, I love you, and I ask it in Christ's name. With